Welcome to the weekly podcast of Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Randall Miller, Assistant Professor in Christian Ethics and Social Theory at the Pacific School of Religion and a member of Epworth United Methodist Church, spoke on Sunday, August 8, 2010. His sermon was titled, Being Good and Doing Good. Infinite Mercy Lets Us Live Out Our Lives in Gratitude. The lectionary reading is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 and 10 through 20. Infinite mercy. Yes, she said, that's when I got my infinite mercy. The speaker was Orabel Ivy, a deaconess and regular attender at the church down the street. You know the type. At the church, maybe four or five nights a week, front row in the choir every Sunday, though she couldn't carry a note, had her finger in every program in the church, and in her spare time, she keeps herself busy by doing good deeds, or as she calls them, errands of mercy. Lots and lots of errands of mercy. In fact, as we meet Orabel, she's on just such an errand of mercy now. She's come to the home of another church member, Ruby Upchurch, to offer her testimony and to try and lift Ruby from the depths of a profound depression. Well, I had to do something, Orabel tells us in a none-too-subtle stage whisper. She's been moping around here for months, ever since that husband of hers up and died. And now she's just sitting at home, alone and in the dark. And it's true, you know, Ruby Upchurch really has just become a shade of the woman that she once was. In fact, she looks so tentative and so frail that even a small puff of wind might bowl her over, let alone the hard circumstances that life can throw at you when you're all alone in the world. It's easy to see that with the loss of her husband, Ruby, who once was so joyful and vibrant, has now entered in a place that is very much like death in life, the valley of the shadow, the scriptures call it. Yes, Orabel says when we enter the room, that's when I got my infinite mercy, and I just knew that somehow the Lord was telling me that I had to help out other people through my errands of mercy. And now I believe he's calling you to be my helper in tending to the sick and caring for the afflicted. You see, most of Orabel's errands of mercy are carried out in a local hospital where she works as a volunteer candy striper. Her errands of mercy consists mainly of wandering down hospital corridors, handing out lollipops to sick children who shouldn't be eating them, providing solace to those patients unable to run away, and handing out a choice track or two when the hospital administrators aren't looking. It's safe to say that no one in that local hospital is particularly fond of Orabel's errands of mercy. And maybe it's because Ruby Upchurch had been gradually worn down by Orabel's frequent prodding and 
repeated visits, or maybe it's because Ruby is truly tired of sitting alone at home in the dark, but she finally agrees to go off with Aurabel Ivy on her next errand of mercy, which is not long in coming. Well, don't just stand there, Aurabel explains. Push on through that door. The two women are standing at the closed door of a hospital room to which a new patient has just been assigned. And there can be little doubt as they're standing there who's in charge of this errand of mercy. But what if he doesn't want visitors, Ruby says hesitatingly. That doesn't matter at all, Aurabel responds. I hear he's so paralyzed he can't move a bit. Poor thing, can't even talk. This one should be easy for you, Ruby. But how am I supposed to communicate with him, asks Ruby. Oh, the Lord will make a way for you, Aurabel replies. All I know is that after I got my infinite mercy, I wouldn't let a thing like him not being able to talk stop me from doing the Lord's work in that room. Besides, I hear he's got one of them Ouija board things so he can move the cursor from yes to no and spell out simple words and whatnot. He'll hear you. More to move away from Aurabel than anything else, Ruby staggers into the patient's room. Satisfied, Aurabel goes to a chair in the corner to watch this scene unfold. Moving up to the patient's bed, Ruby approaches and says, my name is Ruby Upchurch, and who might you be, she says, holding out her hand in greeting before she remembers that even this gesture is beyond the patient's ability. She would snatches back her hand and stands in awkward silence. After what seems an eternity, and so slowly that at first Ruby doesn't even notice, the patient's hand begins to move the cursor on the Ouija board to spell out letters. J, O, H, N, John. John, Ruby says, thrilled despite her awkwardness. Is your name John? Y, E, S. Yes, yes, your name is John. This simple exchange goes back and forth for several minutes until ever so slowly what begins to happen is that John, the patient in the bed, begins to relate his life story in halting movements. It seems that John is a lifelong bachelor who lived all by himself for much of his life, except for an old gray cat, of course. John admits to a lonely existence until one day he is rediscovered by a long-lost niece who comes looking, him, looking for him in the hope that they might make a family of sorts. It isn't long before the two of them are fast friends John's niece spends almost every waking moment in his apartment, reading books and sharing meals. And in time, John becomes to her something of a surrogate father, watching as she grows from awkward child into graceful young woman. 
John shares with Ruby how on Sundays he would put on his best hat, his niece would put on her best dress, and together they would walk along, take long walks in the park with the cat, reveling, reveling in each other's company. And what color was the hat, Ruby says, eyes twinkling. Why, gray, the man in the bed replies. Gray to match my cat, of course. With each new revelation, you can see that Ruby is drawn deeper and deeper into this man's story. She is so immersed that she barely notices that Orabel is still sitting in the corner of the room. But even to Orabel's eyes, not so observant eyes, something extraordinary begins to unfold in the room, and something is happening to Ruby. Her face has taken on new color. The sense of tentativeness that usually surrounds her has all but disappeared, and the worry lines that have covered her face for months and months of months have smoothed over in favor of a quiet smile. It's as if something deep inside of her is finally thawing, something wanting to get out at last. She stands before the patient's bed like a flower in early spring. And where is your niece now? Ruby eagerly asks, wanting to be drawn further and further into the story. But this time, there is no immediate response, only a long, awkward pause. Until the cursor on the Ouija board begins moving again. She grew up a long time ago, John painstakingly spells out. She got married, moved away, and told me that she never wants to hear from me again. When I got sick, I called and called, but she never responded. All gone, all gone. Apartment, books, cats, gray hat, niece, gone, all gone. This unexpected turn in John's story, this terrible moment of hurt, Betrayal and loss catches Ruby by surprise and seems to press her once again to the floor. She slumps in her chair with her, hair, with her head bowed, and once again she seems fragile, tentative, and old. The color and vibrancy that had suffused her features just moments ago have fled. She sits huddled over, stricken, and alone. Ruby stays in that frozen tableau so long that at last even Orabel starts to move across the room to offer what comfort she can, convinced that this final tragedy has pushed Ruby over the brink. When all of a sudden a great shout burst out of Ruby, and for just a minute, Orabel is sure that she has finally lost her mind. But Ruby shouts out loud again, and this time her words are clearly audible. 
I got my infinite mercy, she explains. I got my infinite mercy. It's like my body was asleep and now I'm tingling all over. It's like I was dead and now I'm alive again. Like spring after a bitter winter, he's come back to me and I got my infinite mercy. You see, when Ruby was at her lowest point, when she was so lost to herself that only the grace of God could find her, when her grief, not just for herself, but also for this person laying in the bed before her, had touched her body and soul and nearly consumed her, Ruby got her infinite mercy. And don't you know on this 11th Sunday after Pentecost that that's how this whole Christian mess got started? A group of women who had lost a friend that was dearer to them than life got up on a Sunday morning to visit him in the tomb, and instead of death and despair, they found infinite mercy and new life waiting to embrace them instead. Infinite mercy. That's good news. Infinite mercy, like an unexpected embrace, it grabs a hold of us, turns us around, and connects us so deeply to our own humanity and to the humanity of others that we cannot but live our lives out in gratitude. Infinite mercy. I only want to tell you something that I have seen and a little of what I have heard that here and there in the world, and not always, but now and then in ourselves, there comes a new creation, sometimes hidden, but sometimes manifest. And surely, and good liberals, listen, I'm not saying exclusively or solely or only, surely in Jesus, who is the Christ, Amen and Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Upworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Worship services are Sunday at 10 a.m. at 1953 Hopkins Street in Berkeley. Child care is provided during worship. Visit our website at www.epworthberkeley.com dot org. Oh,